Okay, we'd like to welcome you back to our study on the pre-tribulation rapture theory versus the post-tribulation rapture uh, theory, and um, this is part four. Uh, we're going to, I don't think I'll be able to get finish it in this part, probably this part and another part, possibly a part six, I don't know, it just depends. Uh, we're going to continue where we left off here, point B of the... Um, point we were just making, First uh, Thessalonians 4.16, the shout, the voice of the archangel and the trump of God in this verse sounds unmistakably loud and boisterous, not a secretive and silent catching away as taught by popular proponents of the pre-trib position. Okay, so there's another thing to think about. Point eight, the second coming of Christ is presented throughout the Bible as a one-time climactic event not to be divided into a two-phase rapture, resurrection, and then the return of Jesus Christ seven years later. Jesus will return at the end of the tribulation, first to put down the Antichrist rebellion, and then to resurrect the saints. Well, actually, that probably is probably going to be the other way around. He's going to resurrect the saints, and then the Battle of Armageddon. Now, is the Bible exactly spelled out exactly how that's going to totally, per- totally take place? You know, some things are a mystery, exactly the exact order of things, okay? But all of this can happen at the end of the tribulation, and God can work all the semantics of that out, and already has worked all the semantics of that out. So, nowhere in the Bible is there any indication or teaching, given the second advent will be in two phases, or that it will be preceded, uh, seven years beforehand by such a momentous event as the rapture of the church. This doctrine, the two-stage return, was not taught by any of the apostles. All reference to the second coming are a one-time event. And it, it gives, oh my word, like 20-some different portions of scripture that confirm what we just said about the one-time, not a two-stage rapture. Point B, the three Greek words used in the New Testament for the second coming are parousia, epipenia, and apocalypsis are used interchangeably in relation to all end-time events associated with the second coming with no distinction ever being made between the rapture and the return of Christ. Epiphenia, which is one of the words used to in reference to the second coming of Christ, is usually translated appearing, but it also is translated as brightness in one passage. Okay, let's read some of the passages where this word is used in the New Testament in relation to the second coming of Christ. And these are all interchangeable uses. Second uh, Timothy four one. And I charge thee therefore before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who shall judge the quick and the dead, at his appearing and his kingdom. Okay? So, again, this is at his appearing and at his kingdom. Then this word appearing here is the word epiphenia, translated appearing also in conjunction with the second coming of Christ. Uh, then Second Timothy 4.8, Henceforth there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord the righteous judge shall give me at that day, and not to me only, but all, but unto all them also that love his appearing. This is after the tribulation. Okay? At his appearing. Epiphenia, which means appearing brightness in conjunction, totally used in conjunction with the second coming of Christ. Uh, going further, Titus 2.13, looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing, again the same word, epiphenia, of the great God in our Savior, Jesus Christ. This blessed hope is at the end of the tribulation. I've heard people email me and they say, don't take my, don't, don't you dare uh, take away my blessed hope. Your blessed hope, what, pre-tribulation rapture? That's what they that's what they assume it as. Well, I'm sorry you're believing in a heresy, but you are. And I think we've already proven that amply. So am I therefore become your enemy because I tell you the truth? 
I'm not trying to shake your faith. I'm trying to strengthen your faith in the Word of God because this is the only position that's defensible in the Word of God regarding the rapture. The, the pre-trib is not defensible. You look at the corrupt history and you look at all the Bible verses we've already went over, it's not defensible. So I'm not trying to do anything here to destroy anyone's faith. I'm just trying to ground you in the Word of God so that you have faith in the right biblical interpretation, not some heresy that was started by two Jesuit Catholic priests that infiltrated then into the modern-day lukewarm Christian church. You can get mad at me all you want, but I mean, these are facts I'm giving you. Going further, 2 Thessalonians 2.8. Now again, we're looking at this word, epiphenia. Now I may be butchering the word, I'm sorry. Okay. Anyway, 2 Thessalonians 2.8. And then shall the wicked be revealed, whom the Lord shall consume with the spirit of his mouth, and shall destroy with the brightness, now that word brightness is actually translated from the word epiphenia, of his coming. When does this brightness, this epiphenia, this appearing happen? Well, obviously there we know that happens at the, at the, uh, at the Battle of Armageddon. That's when God, that's when Jesus Christ appears. These words are all used interchangeably. At his appearing and his kingdom. Um, and all the verses we just read, the four verses, the blessed hope, the glorious appearing. It all happens at the end of the tribulation. It's not just, well, some are happening pre-trib and some are happening post-trib. It's all in reference to the same event. The epiphenia of Christ is our blessed hope at which time the Antichrist will be destroyed, our work on earth will be ended, and the living and the dead will be judged. Just see 1 Thessalonians 4.16, 2 Corinthians 5.10. Okay, that's one word that's used um, interchangeably in regard to the second coming. Here's another word. Apocalypsis, Greek. Usually translated meaning revelation or revealed or appearing or the coming. Used in the following passages. 2 Thessalonians 1.7 And to you who are troubled, rest with us. When the Lord shall be revealed, apocalypsis, from heaven with his mighty angels. Okay, when does this revealing happen? Translate, revealed, translated, apocalypsis, in total conjunction with the second coming. When does that happen? Well, the Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels, in flaming fire, taking vengeance on them that know not God, that obey not the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, who shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of our Lord and from the glory of his power. Sounds like the end of the tribulation, battle of Armageddon. When he shall come to be glorified in his saints, they're going to receive glorified bodies at the same time, and to be admired in all them that believe, because our testimony among you was believed in that day. In these passages, there is no promise of a pre-trib rapture. The comfort given in these passages is the vengeance to be taken on the enemies of God's people when Jesus comes back at the end of the tribulation, obviously at Armageddon. Now, afterward, as we have seen from the previous scriptures we have went over, the saints uh, will be raptured. Actually, it looks as though they're going to be raptured right before, and then they're going to come back with Jesus Christ at the Battle of Armageddon. Um, I'm going to change that real quick in here. Again, these are this is, this is all happening in very close proximity to one another. So, um, I just want to kind of make that and clarify that. Okay, so let me just restate that again correctly. Okay, the doctrine of the post-tribulation rapture holds that there is a resurrection rapture of living believers in Jesus Christ at the end of the age, or the end of time. Post-tribulationists believe that Christians will remain on earth through the entire seven-year tribulation and the three-and-a-half-year great tribulation period, obviously, which is the second half. This period starts at the abomination of desolation and ends at the battle of Armageddon, meaning the great tribulation. They will be gathered by the angels to meet Christ in the air, raptured at Christ's second coming, immediately after the Great Tribulation and just before the Battle of Armageddon, and then he and then return with him as Christ descends to the earth to usher in the millennium on earth. This is usually understood as being in line with historic premillennialism, 
Meaning this has been the historic position of the church since the church was formed. So I just wanted to clarify that point because um, I just want to make that crystal clear. Okay, so next point is 1 Peter 1, 7, uh, verse 13 and 4, 13. Uh, Christ is coming after the testing of our faith by fire. There is no pre-trib promise here. 1 Peter 1, 7 says that the trial of your faith being much more precious than, than of gold that perisheth, though it be tried with fire, might be found under praise and honor and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ. Okay, again, this word appearing is apocalypsis, which is usually translated revelation revealed or appearing or the coming, which is always used in conjunction with the second coming of Christ. Okay, the second coming at the end of the tribulation Okay, that the trial of your faith be much more precious than gold, the perish though be tried by fire, might be found under praise and honor and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ when he comes back at the end of the tribulation. Next verse, 1 Peter 1.13, Wherefore, gird up your loins of your mind, be sober and hope to, end, hope to the end for the grace that is brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. That word revelation is apocalypsis. Okay, it's in conjunction with with the second coming of Christ. Okay? The end for that grace that is brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Next verse. 1 Peter 4.13 But rejoice, insomuch as ye be partakers of Christ's sufferings, that when his glory shall be revealed, apocalypsis, his glory shall be revealed, ye may be glad with exceeding joy. When his glory is revealed is at the second coming. Okay, that's when every eye will see him. And okay, uh, then next point: First Corinthians one seven through eight, Christ coming at the end, confirming the saints unto the day of Christ. First Corinthians one seven, so that ye come behind in no gift, waiting for the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Our coming, apocalypsis. Okay, second coming of Christ, waiting for the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. I mean, what else could it be in reference to? We're waiting for that coming, right? That is the blessed hope. When does it happen? At the end of the tribulation. Next verse. Who shall confirm you unto the end, the end, okay, the essentially the end of the seven-year tribulation in this case, that ye may be blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. The apocalypsis of Christ occurs at the end, at the day of the Lord, after the testing of our faith by fire, when he comes with his angels, taking vengeance on his enemies to be glorified in his saints. Now, that last statement I just read was a compilation of all the verses we just read, and they all fit together perfectly. The last word that's in, used interchangeably with the second coming of Christ in the Greek is, is the word parousa, Parousa usually is translated by the word coming, and it's used in the following passages. Matthew 24, 3, 27, and 30, which is in reference to Christ coming at the second advent following the tribulation of those days. Also, it's used in 1 Corinthians 15, 20 through 24. In that reference, it's in reference to the resurrection of those that are Christ at his coming. It's also used in 1 Corinthians uh, 15.20. Oh, actually, that's, okay. That's what we're going to actually expound on. 1 Corinthians 15.20-24. But now is Christ risen from the dead and become the first fruits of them that slept. Christ is risen from the dead. He was the first one resurrected. We're going to follow in his footsteps someday. Meaning, he was taken up into heaven, right? After the resurrection. We're going to follow in those same footsteps when Christ comes back. That's why the Bible says, but now Christ is risen from the dead and become the first fruits of them that slept. Remember, he died, third day rose again. That's, that's a type and example of the resurrection that's going to happen to us someday. He, he was the first fruits though. He was the first one that went. He's already went. How cool is that? 
For since by man came death, meaning Adam, by man came also the resurrection of the dead. Why? Because he humbled himself and became a man, but a perfect man. Adam sinned, Jesus Christ didn't sin, therefore he can redeem all mankind. Because he didn't sin. So, for since by man came death, that's Adam, by man came also the resurrection of the dead. What, what is the resurrection of the dead truly? Well, the, the, he was the first one. He was the first fruits. But the resurrection of the dead is going to occur at the end of the tribulation, at the rapture of the church. The dead in Christ shall rise first, remember? And then the, those that are alive and remain will be caught up together with him in the clouds. Well, same thing. For as, as in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. But every man in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, afterward they that are Christ at his coming. The right here. I mean, this verse right here, 1 Corinthians 15.23, but every man in his order, Christ the firstfruits, okay, Christ was resurrected on the, you know, third day. Resurrected from the dead. He wasn't taken up into heaven on the third day. Okay, or, or permanently taken up into heaven on the third day. But he was resurrected. Okay, but every man in his order. Christ the first fruits. afterward, when is this? When Christ returns, post-tribulation rapture, afterward, they that are Christ at his coming. At his coming is, again, derived from the word parousa which is also interchangeable for the word second coming. How, how can we say this is pre-trib? It doesn't make any sense. It only makes sense in a post-trib context. Afterward, they, that is coming, and then the next verse, then cometh the end. Now hold on. If this was pre-trib, okay, every man in his order, Christ the first fruits, afterward they that are Christ at his coming. Okay, if this was pre-trib, then it says, then cometh the end. Well, then, if the end came right after the pre-trib rapture, then there'd be no tribulation period at all. It wouldn't make any sense whatsoever. But it makes total sense if it occurs after the tribulation. Why? Because then cometh the end. That's exactly what the Bible says after the seven-year tribulation. Then cometh the end. Every man in his own order. Christ the firstfruits, afterward they that are Christ at his coming. In other words, the resurrection of the dead is going to occur afterward, after Christ at his coming. Parousa. His second coming. Then cometh the end. When he shall have delivered up the kingdom to God, even the Father, when he shall have put down all rule and authority and power. And again, doesn't that sound... And we're going to read it again. Here's another sidebar. Let's, let's key on in this last verse. Then come at the end when he shall deliver up the kingdom to God, Jesus Christ. He's going to deliver the kingdom up to God when he shall put down all rule and authority and power. Here's another sidebar. So where in the Bible do we find that this last verse, this last verse is, is explained in depth? Okay, let's read Daniel 7. Through 11. Daniel 7, 7 through 11. After this, I saw the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, dreadful and terrible, and strong exceedingly, and it had iron teeth, it devoured and brake in pieces, and stamped the residue with the feet of it, and it was diverse from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. This is the this is the beast essentially in Daniel associated with the book of Revelation and the day and times we're moving into right now. And I considered the horns, and behold, there came up among them another little horn, before whom there were three of the first horns plucked up by the roots. And behold, in this horn were the eyes like the eyes of a man, and the mouth speaking great things. This is the Antichrist. Okay? Now, they give you that interpretation if you keep reading, but for time's sake, you can read that, but I'm not going to get into it because then we get way off into another tangent here. But we're in reference to the Antichrist here. The ten horns, the ten regions of the earth. That the, that the United Nations has already got maps and split up. Okay, the, the earth into ten regions under the United Nations. The one world rule of any Christ and false prophet, okay? And then going further, 
And I beheld till the thrones were cast down, and the Ancient of Days did sit. Now this is Father God, whose garment was like, whose garment was white as snow, and the hair of his head was like pure wool. And his throne was like the fiery flame, and his and his wheels as a burning fire. A fiery stream issued and came forth from before him. Thousands, thousand thousands ministered unto him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The judgment was set, and the books were opened. And I beheld then, because of the voice of great words which the horn spake, I beheld even till the beast was slain and his body destroyed and given to the burning flame. Now this last verse is fulfilled here at the end of the battle of Armageddon. Okay, which what part of the last verse? Till the beast was slain, his body destroyed, and was given to the burning flame. Okay. Revelation 19.20 And the beast was taken, and with him the false prophet that wrought miracles before him, which with which he deceived them that had received the mark of the beast and them that worshipped his image. These both were cast alive into the lake of fire, burning with fire and brimstone. Okay, so I just want to give you a little fulfillment of that verse right there. Now, going back to Daniel, Daniel 7.13, And I saw the night visions, and lo, behold, one like the Son of Man, now those are the verses we've read previously, the Son of Man, being Jesus Christ, came with the clouds of heaven, and came to the Ancient of Days, Father God, and they brought him near before him, and there was given him dominion and glory, and a kingdom that all people, nations, languages should serve him, meaning Jesus Christ. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom, that which shall not be destroyed. Okay, so again, when we look at, when we look at, Going back a little bit, 1 Corinthians 15.24, Then, well, okay, the rapture, but every man in his own order, Christ the first fruits, he was the first one resurrected, afterward they that are Christ that is coming, they will be resurrected, in other words. Then cometh the end, when he shall have delivered up the kingdom to God, even the Father, the Ancient of Days, which is the same verses in Daniel, when he shall put down all rule, authority, and power. That was just confirmed by the verses we just read in Daniel. Okay, now, these last two scriptures in Daniel are confirmed by, by the previously read 1 Corinthians 15.24 verse, which states, then cometh the end, and I, I just read that. Okay, so again, I just, I'm just belaboring points and being very uh, rhetorical here and redundant so that these points are clearly and abundantly made. Okay, so next point. 1 Thessalonians 4.15, the rapture occurs at Christ's coming. Uh, For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so them also which sleep in Jesus will God bring with him. For this we say unto you by the word of the Lord, that we which are alive and remain under the coming of our Lord shall not prevent them which are asleep. Remember, the coming is parousa, parousa, I'm sorry, Uh, which again is interchangeable, like the other Greek words we've went over with the second coming of Christ. So, we say this unto you by the word of the Lord, that we which are alive and remain under the coming, parousa, of the Lord, second coming of Christ, shall not prevent them prevent them which are asleep. For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, and with the voice of an archangel, with the trump of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, so we shall ever be with the Lord. It's totally in reference to Jesus Christ's second coming, the end of the post-tribulation rapture. And then it goes on to say, Wherefore comfort one another with these words. 2 Thessalonians 5.23 Paul's prayer for believers to remain blameless, until the Lord's coming, uh, where it says, And the very God of peace sanctify you wholly, and I pray God, your whole spirit, soul, and body be preserved blameless unto the coming, the parousa, of our Lord Jesus Christ. Again, the second coming. Second Thessalonians 2.8, the destruction of the Antichrist by the appearing, the epiphania of Christ's coming, per- parousa. Uh, again, Second Thessalonians two eight, and then the wicked shall be revealed, whom the Lord shall consume 
with the spirit of his mouth and shall destroy with the brightness of his coming. Perusa, his second coming, used interchangeably with that term. Okay, again, that occurs uh, in this case in the Battle of Armageddon at the end of the tribulation. So to clarify the order of things previously mentioned, first, the Lord Jesus Christ. Okay, so let me just check this. Okay, so to clarify in the order of things previously mentioned, first the Lord Jesus brings his saints with him. Uh, in First Thessalonians, the dead in Christ, in other words, First Thessalonians 4.14. Then at the rapture, the bodies of the dead in Christ are raised first to be united with their soul and spirit that Christ brings with him. Okay? Where they will receive glorified bodies first. Then those saints which are still alive are changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trump. Okay, so I just wanted to clarify that. So, in conclusion, regarding the three words that we just went over, these Greek words are used interchangeably in relation to all end-time events with no distinction made between the rapture of the saints and the return of Christ indicates that they all take place at about the same time in a planned sequence and are not separated by some seven-year tribulation period. It just doesn't make sense biblically at all. Okay, ninth point we're going to be looking at. The argument that the imminency of the rapture, that is the next prophetic event to be fulfilled with no signs preceding it, would then require the rapture to precede the tribulation is also false. This is a pre-trib argument. The argument is based on circular reasoning, using use of a false conclusion drawn from the pre-trib position and attempt to support the pre-trib theory. Another thing that you have to look at here is that if you say, okay, yeah, but what about this and this and this? Okay, the thing about it is, what you would have to ask yourself, if you're a pre-trib proponent still, is, do the points which you still cling to undo all of the things that we've just clearly went over and clearly stated and clearly confirmed one another? Does that just negate all of the facts that we just said in front of you? All of the cross-confirmation and the clear teaching of the Bible? Does any pre-trip theory you're desperately maybe holding on to at this point, does it, does it cancel out my, the study that I just did on the history, the undeniable corrupt history of the pre-trip rapture, which is relatively a very, very new thing compared to the historic premillennialism, which is post-trip rapture position? Does it undo all the Bible verses that we just clearly used to cross-confirm with one another? That's one of the things questions you'd have to ask yourself. So, this argue of, argument of imminency. Uh, the argument is based on circular reasoning, use of false conclusion drawn from the pre-trib position, and attempt to support the pre-trib theory. We are given several signs in Matthew 24 and elsewhere, which Jesus himself clearly taught would precede his return. These signs include the gospel being preached in all nations, the coming of the Great Tribulation, the Great Apostasy, the rise of the Antichrist, etc. There are several signs that must be fulfilled before the Lord's return. No man can know the day or the hour of the Lord's return, but we are supposed to know when it is near. Uh, Matthew twenty four thirty three. So likewise, Jesus Christ teaching, so likewise, when ye shall see all these things, know that it is near, even at the doors. But of that day and hour knoweth no man, no, not the angels of heaven, but my Father only. But as in the days of Noah were, so shall the coming of the Son of Man be. So we know when it's near, but we don't know the exact day or hour. The imminency of Christ's return. Now I'm going to get into that further a little bit later. Okay, that, that whole, because I had some questions about that. And um, we're going to get into that even further, that point. The pre-tribulation argument that the nature of the church, the bride of Christ, forbids it going through the tribulation is also in error. This argument is based on the premise that the church is exempt from suffering, quote, the wrath of God. Why? Based on 1 Thessalonians 5.9, it says, For God hath not appointed us to wrath, but to obtain salvation by our Lord Jesus Christ. Now that's the verse usually the mid-tribulation proponents use. Okay, They hang their hat on that one. But again, does that undo all of the obvious myriad of scriptures we just went over that cross-confirm one another? I don't think so. This argument is an error because, A, the wrath mentioned in this passage refers to the wrath of eternal judgment in hell rather than suffering through the tribulation period, if you, if you read that verse. 
God hath not appointed us to wrath, but to obtain salvation by our Lord Jesus Christ. This wrath is in, return, is in regard to eternal judgment. It's not in, return, it's not in regard to uh, suffering through tribulation, the tribulation period. <laughs> it doesn't have anything to do with that. And there's some other verses you can see to confirm that. And also, Christians need not to be removed from earth for God to protect them from his wrath. John 17.15 says, I pray not that thou shouldest take them out of the world. Jesus Christ talking to the Father. Jesus said, I pray not that thou shouldest take them, meaning his followers, out of this world, but thou shouldest keep them from the evil. That's what Jesus Christ's prayer was. Did Father God take Jesus out of the world to spare him the suffering of the cross? Nope. And the servant is not greater than the master. Jesus also, Jesus when describing the tribulation period states, Watch ye therefore and pray always that ye may be accounted worthy to escape all these things that shall come to pass and to stand before the Son of Man. Well, if the church was going to be on the earth during the tribulation, why would we need to escape all the things coming to pass? Because we'd be raptured, right? We wouldn't even be here. No, he said, watch ye therefore and pray always that ye may be accounted worthy to escape all the things that shall come to pass and to stand before the Son of Man. God's protection of the Israelites during the plagues on Egypt typifies protection of the faithful remnant of the church during the tribulation. Uh, Noah was not removed from the earth during God's judgment, was but was protected through it. Lot was not raptured, but was moved to a place of safety. In other words, there's a lot of other biblical examples of this same phenomena taking place. The phrase... I will also keep thee from the hour of temptation which shall come upon all the world in Revelation 3.10 can refer to divine protection rather than removal from the earth. And was a conditional promise given to only one of the seven churches of Asia as compared to the promise of persecution and tribulation given to the faithful church at Smyrna. See Revelation 2.8-11. Promise of deliverance from the wrath of God does not include deliverance from Satan's wrath, which will be leveled against the believers during the tribulation. If you see Revelation 12, 11 through 12, Revelation 13, 7 through 10, Daniel 7, 21 and 25, and Daniel 8, 24. Now see, this is why this is all so unpopular, what I'm getting into today. Because this is the quintessential essence of really hard preaching, what we're getting into. It's not... It's not, like, fun to come to this revelation that we're going to be persecuted. We, we may suffer martyrdom. We may suffer like we can't even co possibly comprehend. Whereas the preacher of rapture, wow, we're going to be whisked out of here. I'm going to be out of here and see you later. I'm, I'm gone. You know, no, it's the exact opposite, actually. The exact opposite. So, so no wonder this is enough. So this is not something... That, but see, Satan doesn't want you to be prepared at all. Body, soul, or spirit. He doesn't want you to be prepared for any of this. He just wants this to, you to be taken unaware, and then you to be shocked, and, and you have all your faith in a preacher position, not realize, and then fall away from the faith. That's what he wants. Which is, gonna, what's, which is what's going to happen to most Christians. I'm flat out telling you it is. Because they've actually had their faith in this theory, this pre-trib theory. Jesus will return for a bride that has made herself ready, according to Revelation 19.7. Do you think the church is ready? The bride is spotless and without blemish? I don't think so. I don't think so. I'm not. You know, oh, what a wretch of a man that I am. Who should deliver me from the body of this death? As Paul said. That's pretty much how I feel about myself. You know? <laughs> Uh, so I'm not acting like I'm Mr. Perfect here uh, in regard to, oh, I'm ready, you know. No, that really, God knows what it takes to get you ready. God knows what it takes. And unfortunately, it's not going to be, from a physical standpoint, uh, very fun. But um, I would rather give you the truth and prepare you for what's to come then give you some fairy tale, and then when it doesn't happen, then you despise me, and then and fall away from the faith. 
Jesus will return for a bride that has made herself ready, according to Revelation 19.7, and that has been purged, purified, and made white, according to Daniel 11.35 and Daniel 12.10. This purification will happen, as always, throughout history, through the refining fire of suffering and persecution. See Acts 14.22. We are to take up our cross and follow Jesus. The way of the cross has, in most ages of the church, been the way of persecution and suffering. Just see John 15.18-24. Uh, Philippians 1.29, 1 Thessalonians 3.4, 2 Timothy 2.12, and 2 Timothy 3.12. Suffering and persecution always strengthens the church. The absence thereof always weakens it. Now that's the whole hard, brutal truth. And I'm preaching as much to myself as much as I am anyone else. So again, I'm not saying this because I think I'm Mr. Super Christian. This is hard for me to hear, as it is hard for, I'm sure, a lot of you to hear. So, I had a question regarding, I knew this question would come up. So, I posed this to um, uh, Pastor Adams, and here's his response. If no man can know the day or the hour that Jesus returns, and we know there is a seven-year tribulation period, and that Jesus returns immediately after the seven-year tribulation has ended, and with the abomination of desolation being committed at the midpoint of the seven-year period, if the time of the tribulation is known and or the time of the abomination of desolation is known, wouldn't it be easy to calculate the time of Jesus' return by just adding 3.5 years onto the time at which the abomination of desolation is committed? Or just adding 7 years to the start of the tribulation? Because I knew this was going to come up, and I know that this was an argument that pre-tribbers brought up. Uh, here's Pastor Adam's response. Even though, even, even if we know the exact day and hour that the Antichrist commits the abomination of desolation, which we may not know, Again, that's going to happen inside the temple privately. How are we going to really 100% know? How are we really going to know exactly when the tribulation starts? Like down to the second. How are we really going to know that, if you think about it? It's going to be kind of tough. I don't think God's going to let that be revealed. Because no man can know the day of the hour. But also, in addition to that point I just made, um, he says... I say it will still be impossible to compute the precise day or hour of Christ's return thereafter. Will it be precisely 42 months, a.k.a. also known as 1260 days thereafter, as indicated in Revelation 12 and 16, or Revelation uh, 13, 5? Or will it be the 1290 days of Daniel 12, 11? Or the 1335 days of Daniel 12, 12? Or will the days be shortened? as promised by the Lord Jesus in his Olivet Discourse. Matthew 24.22 says, And except those days be shortened, meaning the tribulation period, the great tribulation period, except those days be shortened, there there should no flesh be saved, but for the elect's sake, those days shall be shortened. Now remember, we can, certain things in the Bible are a mystery. The Bible says we see through a glass darkly, but then face to face. So it's not like we've got some crystal clear determination of everything, and if no man can know the day or the hour, then there is going to be a certain level of mystery to exactly when Christ comes back, because no man can know the day or the hour. So he goes on to say no man knows the day or the hour, nor do the angels, including the fallen ones. And nor will Satan himself or the Antichrist know the day or the hour. God is sovereign and will come at a time when ye think not... Satan will know that his time is short, but his time may be even shorter than he thinks. <laughs> I think that's a very good response. Uh, and then he ends by saying, Matthew 24, 44, Therefore be ye also ready, for in such an hour as ye think not the Son of Man cometh. So that explains that. Because I knew that point was going to come up if I didn't address it. Okay, in conclusion, all scriptures dealing with the timing of the rapture show it to occur after the great tribulation, in particular Matthew 24, 29 through 31, Mark 13, 24 through 27. There's a whole bunch of verses listed here. I'll just let you go through those if you'd like. Not only is the pre-trib rapture position in direct conflict with these scriptures, but there is no verse or passage anywhere in the Bible that teaches that the rapture must precede the tribulation. The arguments support a 
given to support a pre-trib rapture are indirect and very weak at best and involve forced, spiritualized, or secretive interpretations to conform the text to the pre-trib position rather than relying on the plain sense interpretation of the Bible. The pre-trib position is not derived from Scripture, but instead is a preconceived extra-biblical position forcing secretive and twisted interpretations of all passages it obviously conflicts with. The post-tribulation rapture position does not have these conflicts and was the historic position of the apostles and the early church because it is exegesically derived from scripture as it easily harmonizes with all passages related to the second coming of Christ. Hopefully we've proven that by now. The great danger of the popular pre-trib position is that it has produced a, g- a generation of Christians that are totally unprepared for the days of head. Ah, why do you think Satan did it? To produce weak, unprepared Christians, for the most part. Okay, now, somebody's listening to this in their pre-trib. I'm not trying to come down on you. I've been in your shoes. But think about it. Do you think that somebody that embraces the pre-trib position, as opposed to the post-trib position, who do you think is going to be more prepared in the end times? And and when the pre-trib doesn't happen, they're not going to be shocked. All it's going to do is confirm. Also, watch out for, for a false rapture which would be really disheartening to the pre-trib crowd. Wow, all these wicked people got raptured. And I thought I was going to get raptured. And the wicked were the ones that actually got raptured. Yeah, they've been planning that for a long time. Project Bluebeam, they've got all the technology to already do it. You can just key in Bluebeam in the uh, keyword search box at continuefortruth.com if you want to know more about that. Going further... uh, so, this has produced a generation of Christians that are totally unprepared for the days of head, who many times believe they can ignore the warnings of Matthew 24, the book of Revelation, and who see no reason to separate themselves from the rising beast system of Revelation 13, having been duped into believing those passages do not or will not apply to them. Some pre-trib rapture adherents go so far as to actually advocate, support, and give money for the rebuilding of the Jewish temple. Why? So as to speed up the return of Jesus Christ so they can be raptured off the planet and make a quick exit before things get bad during the seven-year tribulation. <laughs> it's true. They do. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We, we, we'll, we'll breed the red heifer. We'll, we'll get the spotless red heifer that we can have to, to institute temple sacrifices again. And we'll get the temple rebuilt really quick. And then Jesus will come back and rapture us off. And boy, we're not going to have to suffer anything. It'll be great. <laughs> That's what's happening. <laughs> oh my word! I've been there. I mean, I've I, I, I've been in the center of that. I'm not saying I ever gave money for that, but I know I was very aware of what he was talking about. And now this is a, something a listener sent me. A recent a recent article sums up what was just described. The rebuilding of the temple has played an important part in the pre-trib messianic Hebrew roots. Christian Zionistic expectations. Such an event would for them signify the imminent arrival of Jesus Christ and the rapture of the church, the rebuilding of the temple. Following the Six-Day War of 1967 and the Israeli conquest of historical parts of Jerusalem, many pre-trib Christians have expected the Jews to rebuild the temple and reinstate the sacrifices prescribed in the Old Testament. The rise in the 1970s of Jewish groups that have advocated and at many times made preparations for the rebuilding of the temple have encouraged Christian pre-trib adherents, evangelical leaders, and organizations which represent millions of conservative, supposedly conservative Christians, have lent their monetary support for the rebuilding of the temple, which they believe prepares the ground for the arrival of the Messiah. Uh, Some Christian pre-trib adherents have taken steps to hasten the rebuilding of the temple and consequently consequently, the coming of the Messiah. Now this means the coming of Jesus Christ's pre-trib rapture. Okay? They have helped finance Jewish groups that have been calling for the rebuilding of the temple. They have also searched for the lost Ark of the Covenant. They've helped breed red heifers whose ashes are needed in order to enable the Jews to enter the Temple Mount and research the exact location of the Temple Mount themselves. Regarding this subject, a listener recently wrote, I found out some months ago via research online that Chuck Smith, the founder of Calvary Chapel, and Chuck Missler, as well as many other leaders, were involved years ago in some of the of these rebuild the Jewish temple pursuits. 
Why on earth would any Christian want to hasten the rebuilding of the Jewish temple in Jerusalem? Many believe this is supposed to be where the Antichrist will take over and the abomination of desolation will take place. Well, that's exactly what's going to happen. I have studied for myself even the evidence that the papal desire for control of Jerusalem is immense. Now, a lot of that, a lot about that's come out in the last week. I can't get into it now, but it has. Uh, so who knows what deceptions are playing? Tied to this stuff is many false pre-trib teachings and teachings about Israel. Um, concerning Chuck Smith, back in the 1980s, he connected with a man named Stanley Goldfoot, who was in contact between the Temple Mount Faithful, a Jewish group desiring to rebuild the Jewish Temple, which Goldfoot helped founded, and the Christian evangelical leaders. Stanley Goldfoot was invited to lecture in Chuck Smith's church, and collections were taken for Goldfoot's activities to rebuild the Temple. Now, all, there's links to all these things that I'm talking about here. I didn't really mean to turn this into a little mini teaching on Chuck Missler and Chuck Smith, but hey, it does relate to it. Chuck Missler co-hosted during the 1990s the annual international conference on the Temple Mount in Jerusalem while heading towards to Israel. These were co-hosted with uh, Lambert Dolphin, a man who actively supports the rebuilding of the Temple. Yes, his last name's Dolphin. Uh, he's got a brother named Porpoise. No, just kidding, sorry. Anyway, right from Lambert Dolphin's own website, there's a link here, he spells out his support. See here for yourself what Lambert Dolphin has written, uh, described in the letter from his own website. Lambert Dolphin actually lives in Dolphin Tank, ironically enough. It's crazy. You can feed him fish. You can call, he's, he's, he's well-trained. No, just kidding. Anyway, sorry. Um, so, Lambert Dolphin says, quote, I would like to see the temple rebuilt. This is a guy that's been intricately related with Chuck Missler um, and Chuck Smith. Calvary Chapel, the whole nine yards. This month, January uh, 2011, a new conference is being called the Prophecy, Understanding End Times, Israel, Islam, and Biblical Prophecy. And um, Lambert Dolphin is invited along with good old Tim LaHaye, Left Behind series, David Hawking, Bill Koenig, Chuck Missler, Gary Kaw, Jack Hibbs, who is a Calvary Chapel pastor, and others. In the list of speakers... And you can see this. Uh, I, I give you the little. I give you the banners for these in the list of speakers. They admit one of Dolphin Lambert's activities. Another of Lambert's activities. Uh, another of Lambert's special interests is the Temple Mount in Jerusalem. He helps maintain the Temple Mount site on the internet. Many of the topics concern the Rapture in Israel. See how this is all tied together. This is all very odd. I've discussed these false teachings before in the evangelical world. But what I don't get is these pre-trib folks believe that the Antichrist is going to take power in this temple. Why on earth would they support the hurrying of that along or do anything to hasten it? More and more, the depth of deception here regarding Bible prophecy has grown. Well, the reason they're doing it, the reason they're giving money is so they can get off the planet quicker. So they get raptured quicker. Isn't that the height of self-centeredness? Oh, I'm going to escape. I'm going to give as much money as I can to rebuild the temple where they're going to reinstitute these uh, blood animal sacrifices, even though Jesus Christ paid it all, and, and, and he was the perfect lamb that was slain before the foundation of the world, and any other sacrifices that go on after his death is just an absolute abomination and affront to God. Now, I know, yes, it has to happen, but I'm not going to give money for that to happen. The blood of Jesus Christ covers my sin. I'm not going to give money so that other blood can be spilled to, to cover some supposed sin debt when Jesus Christ already paid it all. Any other blood shed is, is, is an abomination. We're not under Old Testament Levitical law anymore. Jesus Christ was a better covenant. So anyway, let's go further here. Um, I, and again, this all ties in with the pre-trib stuff. Uh, what's even weirder is that there are other groups out there invested in rebuilding Solomon's temple. Uh, which are the Freemasons and the Templars, which are among them. So now we have an enter another group. We've got the, the papacy, the Vatican, the Pope, clamoring for total control over the Temple Mount. We've got Islam clamoring for total control over the Temple Mount. That's a big reason why they're so mad at Israel. Why? Because the Dome of the Rock is considered the second most holy site in their abhorrent cult devil religion. So you got Rome, you got Islam, you got the Christian, the pseudo Christians helping to rebuild it. You got the Jews themselves, all of this clamoring, and now you got the Freemasons and the Templars. The Freemasons have always planned to gain control of the Temple Mount so they can rebuild Solomon's Temple. 
As soon as they rebuild this temple, their Masonic Christ will appear on earth, they believe, claiming to be the Jewish Messiah for whom Israel has long been awaiting. But this will be the Antichrist. This Christ will be the biblical Antichrist. Other Christian pre-trib teachers who have gotten excited about the rebuilding of the temple are Jack Van Empey, totally in bed with the Catholic Church. I've heard some things come out of that guy's mouth. I, could, I just couldn't even possibly believe regarding the Pope and his licking of the boots of Pope of the Pope. Okay? Jack Van Impey said, quote, The Jewish temple must be rebuilt before the return of Jesus Christ. Again, preacher position. Hal Lindsey, author of great, Late Great Planet Earth, uh, which also taught that. Quote, the temple is the last sign that needs to fall into place before events irreversibly speed toward the return of Christ. So, boy, we better get it rebuilt because things are getting really nasty. Give all your money for it. Oh, God's going to really honor that one. Really honor. So you can get out of here quicker. And you can, oh, you won't have to endure any persecution. Oh, man, it's going to be great for you. I'm sorry, but I mean, (laughs) that's how I see it. I'm not saying anybody that believes pre-trib's done that. I'm just saying a lot of them have. Uh, Jan, Jan Van Der Hooven, the founder of International Christian Embassy, was quoted as saying, What? Uh, he said, quote, Both the Old and the New Testament say there is no possibility for Jesus to come except there is a temple waiting for him. Oh, yeah. Show me that, Jan Van Der Hooven. What Bible is this guy reading? The Satanic Bible? Where does it say that? Where does it say that, that, that Jesus has to come? There's got to be a temple waiting for him. All those verses we just talked about where Jesus comes. Yes, the temple will be rebuilt. Okay, because the abomination of desolation could not occur where the Antichrist goes in there and proclaims himself to be God. But that's not the prerequisite for Jesus Christ coming back. That's not like what all the scriptures hinge on. Not to say it's not going to be there, but anyway. Even weirder is when you find out Christians are helping to finance the breeding of spotless red heifers. These heifers are needed for the animal sacrifices in the would-be temple. In 1996, thanks in part to the cattle breeding program set up in Israel with the help of Texas ranchers who are, quote, fundamentalist Christians, a red heifer was born. There was immense excitement among Messianists, Messianic Jewish movement, Jews for, well, somewhat Jews for Jesus, Hebrew Roots movement, Christian Zionism. Okay, I understand there's different flavors of those, but they are similarly related. There was immense excitement among Messianists, of Israel's religious right and their American Christian counterparts. The world media covered it as a joke about the red heifer. But it wasn't funny to David Landau, columnist for Israel Daily Heretz. He called the red heifer a four-legged bomb that could set the entire region on fire. And then he goes on to say, this is a direct, a direct affront to the blood of Jesus Christ. And then add to those that are so deceived into thinking they can push things along for God. In other words, to make sure prophecies are fulfilled in the Middle East, hastening things along. Supporting false religious rituals means folks have massively lost their way. False beliefs about the rapture play into this as well. I would say it's at the heart of it, really. Why care if one's actions lead to nuclear holocaust if they are no longer going to be here, supposedly? Ah, whatever. As long as I'm not here. You know, I believe too that those who all desire for the temple to be rebuilt also seem to be going to bat for the Vatican. As their power brokering for control of Jerusalem is revealed and evangelicals jump on board in support of the Pope's new Middle Eastern, quote, crusades. These teachers are not to be trusted. So going back to the main article, the book of Revelation is relevant and was given not to scare us, uh, but to prepare us. Therefore, What then should Christians do? Rejoice. We are living in the most exciting days of all recorded history. The coming of our Lord is drawing near. However, as the early church taught, we must go, we through much tribulation, we must through much tribulation enter into the kingdom of God. Acts 14.22 It is this writer's opinion that the necessary mechanisms are in place for Satan to attempt to implement the enslavement of all humanity under the rule of Antichrist. From the globally connected electronic 
banking system and the microchip ID implant, which may possibly become the mark of the beast, to the global government system being set up through the Vatican and the United Nations. Christians must draw near to the Lord, separate themselves from the world, ask for his wisdom, and do all they can to prepare for the very difficult days ahead, including preparing spiritually and mentally to suffer great persecution such as the Western churches have not seen in centuries. It is this writer's opinion that Christians should begin now to remove themselves from the economic system known in the Bible as Babylon, uh, Revelation 18.4, by withdrawing from... Now, this is his opinion. This is, this is Pastor Adam's opinion. And I'm not saying it's not a bad thing to do. Because the thing is, is if you don't start preparing for this stuff now... And you just like wait and wait and wait. Oh wow, I'm right in the middle of all this. Happens, uh, it's going to be much harder. Okay, uh, but he's saying by removing themselves from the economic system known as in the Bible as Babylon, Revelation eighteen four, by withdrawing from the banking and the social security system. Uh, now, comment. I, also, I would add in the five hundred one c three church system, which will be assimilated into the one world religion of Antichrist. Now, that's my opinion, but I guarantee you the 501c3 corporate church system will be assimilated into the one world coming religious system. And it's not going to happen universally all at once. All, I'm sure, sure there's going to be many churches that may resist it and many may, may come out, but it's almost like, why do you want to stay on a sinking ship? They're going to be assimilated. This is why... They started this whole 501c3 trap in America for the corporate church system to get them all under the same banner, to be yoked up with the government. The government gave them the right to exist. They were that Jesus Christ was not the creator of that system. He never said yoke up with the government, ever. Now, if you want to know more about that, I give you my teachings I've done on that. One of them is called Feds Train the 501c3 Clergy to Quell Dissent During Martial Law. Give you that link, audio link, right here. The other one is the 501c3 church being muzzled. The next one is disturbing 501c3 corporate church report. The next one is U.S. churches are now, many U.S. churches are now part of the FEMA and Homeland Security initiatives. They are. They're part of it. They're part of the coming B system already. And some of them are really in bed with that system. FEMA and Homeland Security, yeah. I'm not making this stuff up. Now, by learning how to function outside those systems, I'm not going to even get into that part, because I don't have any teachings on that, but you can contact Pastor Sam Adams. I give a link here to his homepage on his website, and you can email him or call him or uh, you know, and ask him about that, because I'm not 100% sure how to tell you to do the other things that he mentioned. I'm not an expert on everything. I'm not, I mean, I don't really want to say I'm an expert on anything. I'm just trying to put together this information for you. Christians much, must learn um, the biblical function and limitations of civil government and how to resist wickedness in those high places. If we compare Titus 3.1 versus Ephesians 6.12, Acts 5.29 in 7.17. Now, I've done a whole teaching on that called Romans 13 and unlimited subservience to the government. Where should a Bible-believing Christian draw the line? Okay, I give you that audio link here. A lot of these things, you know, I really want you to go and explore my teachings because I'm to the point now where if I get much more emails, I'm going to probably have to shut my, my email address now. It's either that or stop my audios because I'm getting to the point where I'm so deluged with questions that I can't even get anything done. Uh, with the teachings. I can't even devote any time. And the information is also increasing as we move further into the end times. So I'm getting this exponential increase of inquiries and also information coming in. I got all these people wanting me to do studies about this or that. They want, it's like everybody, so many people want me to drop everything and focus in on this. And I'm like, I can't do it all. I'm only one person. Literally one person trying to do all this. And, you know, I'm not mad. I'm just saying it's, it's tough. It's really tough. And it's getting tougher for me to get to everything uh, anymore. So I would ask that you pray for us. Uh, pray for this ministry. Pray for our uh, finances. Pray for, not just for ours, but for the body of Christ in general. That people will will have um, the wisdom, the discernment, the, the provision, the open doors to 
that God would preposition us in positions of strength and not of weakness, that we would be prepared for, for what is coming, that we would be able to be used of the Lord mightily in the days and times coming. And, and um, you know, those are, I think, uh, a, a good way to direct our prayers regarding this particular subject. And then it, it ends by saying, finally and most importantly, Christians should become aggressive, confrontational, soul winners, and do what they can to win the loss to the Lord because the hour is late. This writer also believes there will be special protection and provision in the midst of tribulation for those who determine to be soul winners in the last days. Um, if you are not saved, or you're not sure about that, go to my uh, website, contendingfortruth.com, contendingfortruth.com. There's a tab at the very top that says True Salvation. Listen to those teachings in the order listed. And that will walk you through salvation and what should take place afterward and bearing one's cross and uh, overcoming, the concept of overcoming. We talk about baptism and I have different teachings for different things. So that's where I would point you there. Uh, now, regarding protection and provision in the midst of tribulation for those determined to be soul winners in the last days, uh, Daniel 12.1 says, and at the time... Shall Michael stand up, the great prince which standeth for the children of thy people, and there shall be a time of trouble such as never... Now this is in regard to the tribulation period. And there shall be a time of trouble such as never was since there was a nation even to that same time. And at that time thy people shall be delivered, every one that shall be found written in the book. Then we go to verse 3. And they that shall be wise shall shine as the brightness of the firmament, and they that turn many to righteousness as the stars forever and ever. Now, this is in that time frame. This is something we should strive to do. Um, to be wise and to turn many to righteousness as the star, to turn many to righteousness. There's a lot of blessings connected with that. So, this is something we should be striving to do in our everyday lives. Wise and turn many to righteousness. And then it ends by saying, But thou, O Daniel, shut up thy words and seal the book even to the end of time. Many shall run to and fro, and knowledge shall be increased. That's where we're at right now, right? Seal up the book even to the end of time. And again, some of these interpretations of scriptures that we went over today may not have been as apparent to somebody a hundred years ago. Just in regard to, wow, can the mark of the beast be implemented today? Sure. Go back a hundred years ago. I don't see how that's going to be. In. How could somebody have a mark in the right hand or forehead by which they wouldn't be able to buy or sell? They couldn't even comprehend that concept a hundred years ago. But now it's easy to comprehend it. So I think this is part of, of, of now being able to understand more clearly what the Bible is actually saying. And it's like, oh, well, <laughs> it's no, no great stretch for them to implement the mark of the beast now. That's just one area where I think we have... Uh, where the books are being, um, as, as the Bible talks about it here, where where the books are being um, unsealed, essentially. But thou, Daniel, shut up the words and seal the book, even to the end of time. Many shall run to and fro, and knowledge shall be increased. Now, that doesn't mean all the knowledge is true knowledge. Okay? And this knowledge, I mean, obviously, just look at the internet. Okay, knowledge is increased. Many are running to and fro, but most people are running to and fro like a chicken with their head cut off, and they're pursuing the wrong knowledge. Okay, uh, going further, Proverbs eleven thirty: The fruit of the righteous is a tree of life, and he that winneth souls is wise. Okay, Revelation three seven says, in the angel of the church of Philadelphia write, these things saith he that is holy, he that is true, he that hath the key of David, he that openeth, and no man shutteth, and shutteth, and no man openeth. I know thy works, behold, I have set before thee an open door, and no man can shut it, for thou hast a little strength. Thou hast kept my word, that means a lot to God, keeping his word, keeping the word of God, and hast not denied my name, because thou hast kept my, thy, the word of my patience, I will also keep thee from the hour of temptation. Now these are verses connected with God's protection. I'm not just trying to give you the, all the negative, you know, no hope, so many people could perceive them as no hope type verses regarding the end times. I'm trying to give you the positive verses also in conjunction with God's protection, okay, as well. Uh, because thou hast kept 
the word of my patience, I also will keep thee from the hour of temptation, which shall come upon the whole world to try them that dwell upon the earth. When does that happen? During the tribulation, obviously. And then the next verse, Behold, I come quickly, hold thou fast which thou hast, that no man take thy crown. It's very possible, and it's, you know, it's very possible to lose your rewards, in other words. The Bible warns about that over and over again, losing your reward. Um, Revelation 3.12. And that's why the Bible says that the judgment seat of Christ, I believe why it says, um, they're going to have works, you know. Wood, hay, stubble, they're going to be burned up. Gold, silver, precious stones. And then it goes on, and those won't be burned up. Those will be purified by the fire. Those are going to be rewards you keep, get to keep. Judgment seat of Christ. Not great white throne judgment, which occurs at the end of the thousand year millennium. Judgment seat of Christ. The, the judgment for believers. But then it, is say, then it says, some will be saved, yet so as by fire. Now I'm not 100% sure exactly what that means, but I really don't want to be found, I really don't want to find out either. Okay, there's some that are going to be saved, they're going to basically have no reward, they're going to be saved, yet so as by fire. Still going to be saved, but so as by fire. And the Bible doesn't really get real clear on exactly what that means. Uh, let's go further. Uh, Behold, I come quickly, hold thou, hold that which thou hast, that no man take thy crown. Him that overcometh, will I make a pillar in the temple of my God, and he shall go out no more. And I will, I will write upon him the name of my God, and the name of the city of my God, which is New Jerusalem, which cometh down out of heaven from my God, and I will write upon him my new name. Okay, now after this, we're done with the study now. After this, again, if you want to know more about the, chrono, the chronology of the pre-trib rapture, uh, I'll just read you the first paragraph here from... This particular man that put this puts this put this out. It's actually a thousand dollar challenge to disprove this as well. He's got a challenge at the end. Dave McPherson, author of the incredible cover up. Since the 1970s, stunning new data has been surfacing about the pre-tribulation raptures, long covered up beginnings in the 1800s. In recent years, several persons associated with Dallas Theological Seminary, which had been pre-trib pre-tribized, meaning they've been totally taught that doctrine, have reportedly gone to Britain to check out my research sources and then write books opposing my claims. In 1990, an Ohio pastor told me that Dr. So-and-so, the most qualified uh, Dallas theological professor, traveled there and came back and wrote nothing. The pastor added that he and some others had a good laugh about it. Meaning, oh, it doesn't matter. And then he gives you a chronological... Now, he starts from 1825. I go back quite a bit further. But his timeline is much more detailed than mine, he picks up from 1825, and if you want to know more about that to modern day, then you can read this part. But it's really, a lot of it's redundant, and a lot of it's just unnecessary. Hopefully we've given you enough today to uh, understand what's going on here. And uh, we're just about out of time, so I'm going to go ahead and close this out in a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day and this time you've given us, Lord. Uh, I, I just pray, God, that your word and your truth would go forth with all power and might, Lord, that... You would give us eyes to see, ears to hear, and hearts to receive whatever your truth is, that you would guide us and direct us in all truth, that you would give us, Lord God, discernment and wisdom, Lord God, and understanding and knowledge, and that you would keep us from the wicked one, Lord God, and keep us from being deceived, and that we would humble ourselves before you, Lord, in the name of Jesus Christ in all things, that we would give you all praise, honor, and glory regarding all the things that you've done for us, and all of the mercy and grace you've bestowed upon us, most of all, for the Lord Jesus Christ, saving our souls. In the name of Jesus Christ, we praise you, we thank you for these things. I pray you forgive us for any and all sins we've committed in any way, shape, or form as we forgive those who have sinned against us, that the words of our mouth and the meditations of our heart would be acceptable and pleasing in thy sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Um, I just thank you, Lord, and we ask all these things in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen.